Scott Caporo. Hi. You just came back from Norway, right? Yeah, last night. I got home at nine o'clock because I was stopped at the immigration. Why? Oh, it's a long story. But the Royal Mail lost my passport with my work permit stapled into it. So I was illegal in this country for about three days. They misplaced it. I think one of their carriers took it. Anyway, he said his carrier bag was stolen, and my piece of mail happened to be in it. But I think he saw, oh, look, a home office thing. He shook it. Oh, this sounds like a passport. I'll have this. Anyway, so my new passport looks fake. It does look fake because they had to replace it like a day. But when I came in, all my paperwork looks like a mess. Things have been faxed and, you know, emailed. And the guy's like, what are you handing me? <laughs> I said, this is my, these are my documents. He said, this passport looks like you got it on a Monopoly board. I'm like, I know. It's what? And so he had to leave me in a room for a half hour. That's a debilitating experience. I totally felt like a terrorist without all the glamour of being kind of hot and bearded. And then... He came and let me go, but by then my luggage had been misplaced. It took me forever to get, God, I'm such a bitchy old woman. Anyway, so <laughs> then I got home at 9 o'clock. I was a bit stressed out from Norway, and my boyfriend said, Kapoor, you smoke some marijuana, drink some wine, you'll feel better. And I'm really hungover. Did you feel better? Yeah. Good. And then he banged the hell out of me like the hooker I've always wanted to be. Oh, it was great. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. How was Norway? I went to Norway a couple of years ago, and I love Norwegians. I totally fell in love with them. They're really naughty. What do you like about them? I just thought they're really mischievous. Mm. When they're drunk. When they're drunk. Which is almost every night. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I've dealt with drunk audiences right around the corner from here, actually. The police had to take someone away about three months ago. I had to give a police report. Seriously? Why? Yeah. Oh, he's, you know, there's some marine, Marines in the third row. And uh, I was talking to them. They were hot. And some guy stood, you know, screw the Marines, screw America. And then the Marines got into it with him. And they were swinging... Like twirling arms and legs like in a cartoon. It was hilarious. And then the security guards came down and tried to quell it. And they're Russians. And this dwarf, shaved head English guy with his mate drunk took on these two Russian guys that were both the size of a refrigerator. And they picked them up and took one of their heads and whacked it against the floor to calm him down. That's what they said they did it for. And then they brought them upstairs. You heard a crack. The audience loved it. They brought him upstairs, and there, there's a paddy wagon cruising the square every Friday, Saturday. And they just took him in and shipped him away, and then I had to make a statement. So who's the funny man? That's what the cops said to me. I got a cop's number, though. They're so camp, the police in Central <laughs> well, they... London. Oh, my God. He was gorgeous. Yeah. What happened with the gig, though? Did you have to like, It was great. The, the audience or... thought I was like a hero, because I kind of, not really, though, handled it. I just made fun of them until they were dragged away. There were a bunch of young Scandinavians, and they just thought it was great. But, you know, comedy in Scandinavia is newish, stand-up, the kind that we're used to. You know, the abusive horror self-hating kind and then um, that the British are so well known for you know this is humor the irony quote unquote the sarcasm anyway it's not familiar to the Norwegians they don't talk about politics and religion on stage they find it very very intrusive to do that and they're cold Norwegians if you're a foreigner they use the words please and thank you but you know they don't have the correlation in language for themselves they don't have those words in their own language they say tak tak which means thanks if you're their family members or tausend tak which is like a thousand thanks so then what do they do as an audience? Do they just they sit, sit there and, and stare at you when they're sober and they applaud your setups and applaud your punchlines because they're well behaved. But when they're drunk, like Saturday night, they come with their families and they're like, take your shirt off. Buy me a drink. Some guy stood up and like did this at me, like just put your cock in my mouth kind of thing. What? Yeah, the whole thing with his fiance right there. But he was closeted. I've been at the bar before I went on and he was staring at me and I'm like, what? What do you got? What do you got? I'm from New York. You stare at me, I'm going to kill you. And then I realized... 
Well, I was on stage that he was looking at me like that because I guess he was vaguely aroused because I'm tall. That's why I get laid all the time and because I never say no. <laughs> but it was weird because um, during the weeknights and even on the Friday, they're really well behaved. But on Saturdays, they just get hammered before they get to the club. They're drunk. Who's the best audiences? What country has the best audience? The Irish by far. Oh, really? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And who's the, who's the worst? Who are the most sensitive? I hate sensitive? to say it. Well, Who Go do you on. think? Who? What? You don't even see it. It's happening around you. You can't even see it happening, can you? It's terrible. To be in the, oh, in the eye of the storm. Are the Brits the worst? You mean the BBC that apologizes <laughs> for itself and shuts us on radio stations down? I mean, down? in terms of, no, but I'm sure you've It's you pathetic. Had... You guys have this weird thing where, oh, it's just so strange. London's okay. Oh, it's fine. I, I'm not going to bitch about it. I work here. It's great. Love it. No, it's I mean, the Irish are great because they're not competitive and because they like Americans. Well, they act like they do, which is all I require. But, you know, for me in Britain, the one thing I have to overcome generally is the American thing, which is funny. It's hypocritical. Do you think you get away with less for being an American or more? I, would I get away with what more. I want. But what I would like is to not be thought of as racist the minute I open my mouth because of my accent. That would be nice. And, you know, I've elected Obama, so that's helped. Um, but, um, you know, we're all racist in our own simple way. But I think that there are parts of Britain where I go where I feel like, there's a bit of a struggle with the audience because they feel like the British own irony, don't go near it, and Americans aren't capable of sarcasm or dry really? wit. Yeah, sometimes. But you know what? That's probably old. I probably don't deal with that so much anymore. Do you think, if you don't get away with more for being an American, do you think you get away with more in terms of pushing boundaries and, and making dark jokes because you're gay, because it's like, well, I'm a minority, so I'm allowed to? What a cynical question. <laughs> I get away with what I want because I'm... Um, capable, I think. I mean, you know, any of those things you just mentioned could stand in my way if I didn't know what I was doing. But um, each night I go on stage, I try to make the show different. I don't cater it for the audience. I mean, different from myself. And there are two or three points I want to hit on. But I can handle a rough audience. That's not a problem for me. The thing is, invariably, I want my material to be accessible. That's the challenge for me, is to make that idea that I'm kidding very clear. I want an audience to I want to chip away at their self-esteem. I want them to feel bad for laughing, but I don't want them to leave. The thing about your country is, when they hear a gay man's voice, they expect them to behave a certain way, especially in a comedy atmosphere. And I think we all know in this room what that way probably is, which is mincing and apologetic and frankly to me derivative. I don't behave that way. I'm the opposite. I'm aggressive and contentious, and this is why I'll never be on television regularly really, in this country. And I've given up my hopes and dreams about that a long time ago. I'm not bitter about it anymore. But, you know, I'm the kind of gay that people don't know necessarily or want to know. I'm not really the kind of guy sometimes you want to have a beer with afterward either. A lot of comics succeed on that realm, and that's great for them. And I think they're really funny, but that's just not what I do. I just want people to leave the club thinking, oh, wow, that was... Like one night I was just playing club around the corner too, and the straight guy wanted to hang out. And so I brought him to Vauxhall Tavern. I got him drunk. I didn't have to push him much, so I brought him back to where I was used to live. I had him on the couch, and I came in his mouth. And after he swallowed my coming, he went, oh, wow, that's something new. I'm like, oh, you've never sucked cock before? That's how I want an audience to feel after they watch my show. That's an amazing analogy. Mm. You live here now. But right? it should be different. People pay a lot of money to go out. It's difficult to see live performance, especially in Leicester Square on the weekends. If you're a thinking person, forget about it. So I want them to, you know, get their money's worth. I want them to feel like they've had a little fun with somebody they might never meet otherwise. It sounds pretentious, I guess, when I say it out loud.
No, no, no. I think that totally makes sense. But I think people are lazy and they think, well... But not the ones that go out. This is the thing. I don't think audience members are because they've made that effort. I'm lazy. I just don't want to go anywhere. When I have loads of friends that are performers. I'm like, oh, Jesus, fuck. You really want me to go to Windsor on a Saturday to see you in a musical about AIDS? But, you know, eventually you drag yourself. But these people do it voluntarily and spend the cash. It's expensive. I think that people are lulled into a feeling of self-sufficiency, uh, self-grandizement by what they're offered on stage. What I mean is Britain is notorious for recreating itself on stage, and that's what you guys do well on TV, too, is reinventing your history again and again and again. And people, that if you're given that, like whatever Upstairs and Downstairs happens to be this year, if you're given that crap, then that's what you tolerate. You know, I, th- I just imagine people go to comedy clubs because they want to be challenged. But you're right. Some people don't want to be challenged. But it's my job to change their minds about that. And most people go along with it. You live in the UK now, right? How long have you been living here? On and off for about 15 years. That's just interesting because you still say, like, you and your country. Well, it's not mine. I mean, I like it here, but it's not my culture. But I have to be respectful of that. You know, I'm aware of that all the time. I would never go on stage and start barking at people about whom you've elected and how dare you and you... You know, it's all, it's got to be my story. You know, otherwise, who the hell am I? I mean, I know comics who think that they're good from America. They come over here barking about, oh, the drug problem you have and the the poverty problem you have and the the literacy ratio. And audiences just are like, who on earth do you fucking think you are? You know, if you don't like it here, then go back to Brooklyn. And I have to make clear that the reason I'm here is because I like it. Otherwise, why would I be here? Why would I be on stage? Why am I barking at them? Why did you move here in the first place? Because of the work, really. What, for doing stand-up? Yeah. I was doing movies and stuff in the States because I used to cast a lot of shit out of San Francisco. And I was an actor for a long time. That was the first... You started off being an actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was doing a play in San Francisco and I I did Mrs. Doubtfire. And then I came over here right when that opened here. And that's why I got work in the store right away. I didn't really have to audition in the store. I did one audition set, one five minutes, that was it. And they started booking me right away, which is rare. But, I mean, I was in a huge feature Hang on, so you were in Mrs. Doubtfire. When I found this out about you, I was like, I didn't know that. And then when I found out which character you played, I was like... Oh, because I oh, saw it AZ, long before I knew the who gay you AZ were. one, yeah. And then um, you, were, you were one of the makeup artists yeah, yeah. that transformed. Yeah, yeah, Jack. And then how Star did, Wars helped too. I mean, that, yeah. all that stuff helps you get on stage in this country. So hang on, hang on. One thing at a time. So Mrs. Doubtfire first. Did that come back? Was that just like a straight audition? Yeah, I was. I was just a regular actor. I was getting a lot of work because I was young. And uh, I was a type. I was a skinny, nerdy boy next door type. And I was getting a lot of commercial work for that. And then uh, Doubtfire came along, and I went to the audition. They asked for a designer type, obviously gay. Uh, they didn't have a script. And I showed up, and there were all these – it's 1994, three. And so actors were different then. And the whole idea of a gay man in, in cinema and on TV was still rare. And there's a room full of guys in three-piece suits with briefcases. I'm not kidding you, actors showing up for an audition. That's how actors used to dress auditions, with suit and tie. And I'm wearing whatever, probably something like this. And uh, I could hear the auditions with them in there, like trying to improvise like a – well, we got to get you in something that makes you look like a woman, I guess. Like stuff like that. <laughs> it's hilarious. And then uh, I got into the audition. They said, you know, Robin is playing a woman and um, go. And they took the camera on. And I'd read something about him having his hands shaved for a film because he's very hairy. And so I just went into that. I'm like, we've got to shave your knuckles. We're going to have to strap you down and shave your forearms. You are a hairy beast. And I got the job. Also, I got a call back, but then I was doing stand-up in San Francisco at the time as well. I just become a house comp- a house MC for a comedy club that Robin used to go to all the time. And he came by one night after the, and I told the club owner, and he said, "Tell Robin about your audition." I'm like, "Oh well, I audition because he and Marsha produced it. Robin did." And I said, "Oh, I auditioned for your film, Mrs. Alfar." 
And he said, well, what part? I told him, he said, well, that shouldn't be a problem. And I think it was like a week later I got the call. Wow. So I think he was instrumental. I mean, I imagine they want to see me again, but I was in New York working and I'm like, I'm not flying out if you want me. No one knew how big the film would be. And I was, I've always been incredibly um, <laughs> self-centered. So I'm like, I'm not coming back out. You see me twice. You want me, you can have me. I was lucky. It was a great movie. And it's great to be on the set. I mean, my first film, I was shaking, of course. I was a complete mess. I mean, a film set, people don't, you know, there's like 50 people running around adjusting things. You are the least important person thing on the set. The lights are much more, the sound, you're just a thing. You're just get in there and do your thing and get out. Uh, but I, ha- I was fortunate enough to be on a set with Robin and Harvey, Harvey Farstein, and they were both stand-up comics. And we were the only actors on the set for a week. And they made me feel so... And Chris Columbus, the director, was amazing. And I didn't know who he was or what he'd done. I was completely out of it. This before the internet, though. And um, I said, so how'd you get the gig to him? He said, well, um, I directed Goonies, and I know Steven Spielberg really well. I went, oh, that's... Well, makes sense. And Harvey heard the conversation and said... You're either a retard or a really good actor because you really didn't know who he was. I'm like, no, I, what? Anyway, it's sad that I've lost that sort of naivete and innocence. It was like when I first came over here that a few months later to do the Edinburgh Festival. And I imagine the Edinburgh Festival was about three tenths. Seriously, I had no idea. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know where Scotland was. How come you did it? Because a guy saw, I came over to a, attend a film opening of a, a short film I'd made at the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival here in 94. And uh, while I was here, I did a couple of sets, and this promoter saw me and said, I'd like to come back into the festival. I'm like, okay, whatever. And I'd just written this one-person show, a show that would never get attention or win awards or sell tickets now. It was a coming-of-age gay thing. People couldn't be any less interested these days in something like this. I was a complete nobody here, although the Doubtfire thing probably helped a little bit. Anyway, so I came over and did it, and I uh, arrived in Edinburgh, and I had no, absolutely no idea. The parade was going down Princess Street, and I'm like, what the hell? Is there a war? What is this? I got to my venue. I thought there were like three venues. Anyway, I did my show. The first night, I just went on. I hadn't seen Edinburgh. I hadn't seen anything. I just went to my venue, did a tech. It was a crappy little room with a coffee machine in the back. I thought it would be terrible. But um, The Guardian showed up like the first night, and that was it. I went, moved from a 40-seater to a 250-seater and won the Perrier. So I'm glad I didn't know. Otherwise, I might have altered the show. Because I'd, oh, I'd done a preview of that show in London, and everybody walked out. Really? Well, 70%, we figure later. Got up en masse and left. Oh, my Because God. it wasn't stand-up. Right. And people didn't know who I... Why do they care about this queer coming out? It sounds like pedophilia. Because I talked about having uh, sexual uh, fantasies about my cousin. But I was 14 when it was happening. But they weren't... There was music and feelings, a hand of pearls. It was very touchy San Francisco feely. It was very, uh, very clog-wearing, sort of vegan food, kind of. It was my... Uh, it was me a long time ago. Anyway, and um, it had done well in San Francisco, you know, where all that happens. In a club where they serve vegan food. And Anyway. But um, and my management here, when those people walked out, said, do your stand-up. Cancel that show. Don't do it. Your stand-up's really good. It's fine. Just do it. And I called the guy who ran the vegan-y restaurant place in San Francisco where I'd done the show, Donald, who's since died. And um, he said, screw them. You pay for your plane ticket. Do the show. And I'm like, yeah, act up. Fight back. And so, uh, <laughs> stupidly. I mean, now... Well, I, smartly, because you won well, the period. But now I would have, if I'd known anything, if I'd yeah. known the possibilities that Edinburgh offers and the opportunities performers go there hoping to amass, I wouldn't have done it. I mean, it's it's a trade fair, and I had no idea. I really thought there was like a book room next door. Seriously. <laughs> So you won the Perrier then that first year. You're a newcomer, and I got nominated for the main award the following year. Yeah. And were you still living in the U.S. then? Oh, yeah. Did things kind of kick off then in terms of... Yeah, definitely. The snowball started rolling. And then, I mean, I wasn't even a professional comedian, really, at that point. And then um, I just started getting 
a lot of stand-up work here. And then I've stuck with it because there's so much work here. I mean, you know, there's like 10 clubs in Leicester Square. When you go to other countries like Norway, where I just was, or Australia or Canada, people are like, how much do you work? What do they pay you? You know, there's nothing else like it. And comics are incredibly lucky to be here. This is ground zero, really, for stand-up. Are you so. still doing acting bits? Yeah. So you did, hang on, you mentioned the Star Wars film. That came, like, a lot later after Mr. Duff. This was Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace. Yeah, yeah. You were... I was a one head of a two-headed monster. Yeah. Just sportscaster monster. <laughs> and you had to speak like a weird... Hatties. Can you remember any of it? I have to because I'm... Actually, I'm doing a Star Wars convention soon. Are you really? Yeah, have you done any before? Yeah, in Tokyo. Amazing. Have you done any before? You haven't seen a nerd until you've seen a Star Wars nerd in Tokyo. Oh, my God. Because the Japanese are a bit nerdy and adorable with the big glasses and the tiny. But then with the bags of Star Wars stuff and crying when they're shaking your hand, I cannot tell you how special it is to have you here. Yeah, all right. Back off, little guy. And then they take you out to dinner and treat you like princes. Oh, and if you go with the female dancers that wear the horns and the tails, you know, these Japanese guys act like they've never been laid. I swear to God, I have never seen men behave in the, like carnivorous around these women. And the chicks dig it. And then they just throw money at you. Did they? Japanese are loaded. We hear about their economy not doing well. Whatever. Oh, my God. They're great. I used to wait tables in San Francisco and... The people that always spend the most money and tip the highest are the Japanese. And they're completely gracious. They're lovely. And the Star Wars convention there was amazing. So what do you have to do at the conventions? Very little. I sit at a table and sign things. And do people get their picture taken yeah. with you? How do they know it's you? Because originally you were like made up they and they see How do they know? Are you kidding? These people know everything. They send me photos of me in various stages of makeup. Where'd Seriously? you get that Polaroid? I'm not kidding you. <laughs> with the internet? Are you kidding? They know everything about my character. They know the history of it. There's a, a Hutties dictionary. I've also done voiceover for some of the um, DVDs and uh, for the games and stuff. I mean, these people, they're not kidding about any of this. You cannot joke with them. Although, I've done stand-up at, at one of them. And, um, really? Yeah. What was that like? It was behind a podium. It was like doing a seminar. But again, they throw money at you. You can't say no. I'm also an action figure. So, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. That's like a life dream. I guess. Again, <laughs> from being a kid. I went because Proops, Greg Proops told me, oh, you, we got to go to this audition. They want to. He was the other head. Yeah. But Greg, they'd ask Greg to come and audition. And he said, I got to find a, a loudmouth American. Will you do this with me? I said, yeah, there's no script again. And we went in and Greg just improvised for a half hour for this casting agent in North London. And she loved it and hired us. And they used some of his lines in the script. And it was great. He was fantastic. Of course, he's a genius. I just followed his thing. And I thought, Star Wars, uh, okay, I'll go. He's like, we've got to go. And our management was the same at the time. She's like, you shouldn't do this. The money's not good enough. And Greg's like, I'm doing it. You know, I'm doing it if they hire me. And I'm like, well, all right. And then I showed up on the set and oh, Star Wars stuff everywhere and guys in costume and Ewan McGregor. That was my favorite part was meeting him. He's gorgeous. Gorgeous. And then George was there, you know. And then we hung with George for a day. But if you tell people stuff like this, they weep. It means nothing. To, I mean, it means something because it was fun. But I don't care. The first TV commercial I did was with Joe Montana, who's one of the most famous footballers in American history. I didn't know who he was. And I'm on the set, playing a nerd, obviously, and he's throwing the football at me. I'm catching it. And I can hear my friend Julie from back there going, catch the ball! Catch it! Like, she's a huge football fan. Afterwards, I'm like, could you stop embarrassing me? We're in my trailer. And she said, do you know Heisman Trophy? I'm like, really, I don't. I have no idea. I really didn't. He was cute. I don't know who anyone is. I think that's good, though. No, I think it's probably good for them. Because... It isn't good. Oh. But it's good. But it's like some of my friends who are very, very, very famous in this country now. We started around the same time. I won't tell you there. It's boring. But they're very great people. I wouldn't bring them up. But, but you know, I didn't know when I met them, when, when, like in Edinburgh, 94, 95, that they had this ambition to be on BBC One on Saturday nights. Like that was their thing. I should have known. 
because of the way they talked a little, but I never really got it. They knew everyone. They knew every person they met at a party. They knew their friends. They knew their position. They knew how to contact them later. I never, I'm shit at all that. When I won the Perrier the first time, I didn't go to the award ceremony. They handed it to me behind a bleacher, and it was chipped. And I'm like, oh, can I get a better one? And um, I only care because I wanted the award to be pretty. I don't care about ceremonies and competitions. I do badly in them. I shoot myself in the foot. I've auditioned for Letterman and Tonight Show many times. Every time I go on, they tell you before you go on, keep it clean. I go on, and I'm like, so I had my cock in his mouth. You know, it's, I guess it's my lack of trust. I don't, I don't trust authority figures. I just don't have any faith in them. I think this is why clubs do ban me. But I think, again, that they, you know, I know there's a black female comic, I won't tell you, in this country who's had a TV show for a few years. And she's great. But she says when she's in meetings at the BBC, they don't see her. They look between her eyes because these white guys from Oxbridge don't, they don't see her. They don't get her. They don't hear it. And I, sometimes when I'm on stage, I feel that there's too many things to overcome when you're watching my set to really join in on it for some people. I had to punch a woman in the head in Soho about yeah, a year ago. Why? And she, because she came at me. And the club banned me. Why did me. she come And they're at still – because I did some Maddie McCann jokes and she's, uh, she said, I don't have to tolerate this from some fucking queer. Now, I don't have any boundaries, but that's it. She crossed the line with me. And she got up and put on her coat. I walked in front of the stage and I just went Bleh! on her temple like that. I, I know. It was bad. No one wants to see a gay man battering a woman. It's not a good idea. And she went, oh, I just had head surgery. I'm like, it didn't work. I mean, she didn't have head surgery, you know, but it's like it got like that. And the staff, there was a new owner of the club, of the club, and he didn't know my work. The previous guy would have supported me, but it got became this huge thing, and I was expected to write an apology, which, of course, I did not do. And they backed off eventually, too, because she was being homophobic, and her office mates were there. And nowadays with homophobia stuff, you can kind of use that as a wild card, which isn't good, but I do. And so I didn't have to, actually. I didn't have to. She backed off, and I did, too, which was fair enough. I think we were both in the wrong. And I would never, ever, usually touch an audience member, you know. But I had just – she caught me on the wrong night. And, you know, I just think that comedy is very personal. You know, it's weird to me. Sometimes people go on dates, first-time dates in a comedy club. I would never make that mistake. It's a very intimate relationship I have with the audience. It's really about my relationship with them. And some relationships are good and some are bad, and I take that in stride. I mean, that was one show in a million. I'll remember that one because I punched her in the head. Had I not done that, I probably would have forgotten about it. I'm sure there's been many experiences like that. And it is a brave thing comics do. We're meant to push people. If they're not angry and shaky by the time I'm done, I haven't done my job. Especially nowadays with your that retard one-eyed PM you have, that cockhorn brown. I mean, at least Hitler was elected. But also, he's passed all these laws in this country. You can't incite homosexual hatred or religious intolerance. I mean, what am I meant to talk about? And even though people don't know of these laws specifically, there is a certain atmosphere that that sort of boring, you know, impossible humorlessness pervades. You know, and people get frightened. And suddenly comedy clubs start answering to it too. The store won't put me on the weekends, only on the weeknights. Not on the weekends. Because that's when you get the down for a day. I don't know what their idea is, but that's their club and they can do what they like. But they're responding and reacting to what they think the general atmosphere is. And I find that dangerous. I'm not that scary. Come on. I don't, I hardly swear. You know, I used to talk about sex a lot more than I do now, but I've had a lot of clubs say, oh, the sex we can defend. That you can talk about. Please hit on the guys in the front row. We we can do that. Because then if they respond, we can just say, well, you're just homophobic. But, you know, your political stuff. Because I use the N-bomb sometimes. Whatever. I'm making a point. But they don't forget about callbacks at some of these clubs. People weren't listening the first time around. But, but you, people have to be trained and educated. 
But I think with race people, especially middle class white people, in this country, totally freaking out. The British are so racist. You don't hide your anti Semitism. Listen, I'm not. I'm not complaining about it. They're great tools for me to play with. You know, the British say, "Oh, it's not. (laughs) It's not the Jews I hate. It's Israel I don't respond to," which is like saying, you know. A white South African, because I was just there, and they say things like that. They're like, oh, I hated apartheid, but ooh, I'd love my lifestyle back. You don't get one without the other. You know, I mean, ask a Jew. A Jew and Israel are the same thing. But, you know, you can't even talk about those things here. People get so worked up. In America, you talk about race, you have to. It's every comedy club's a melting pot. you got Haitians on top of this, on top of Colombians, and they all want to hear you attempt to do their accent. But here, you're right. Most rooms are white and middle class, and white middle class people in this country have a lot of concerns. No ethnic friends, but they're very concerned about minority groups. You know, they have no time for them. But, you know, the minute you start talking about the Chinese here, people think you're racist. There are comics here who have said in the press, who are famous, that if you do an ethnic accent, you're a racist. And I just, I disagree with that. You know, what is racism other than funny? But what is it other than, you know, if you get a word wrong, then you're a racist. That's the label. The point of my act is not to to reveal anything about themselves, although it does. It's to reveal things about me. It's my show. Those 20 minutes are my time. People forget this. The spotlight's on me, that your opinion doesn't mean anything to me right now. Opinions are not of equal importance. Obviously, you live in a monarchy. But also, I have the microphone. I win every time. So back off. I don't care about your feelings. There's a buffer. We'll never be friends. I don't care about you. You know, if you want a clown, go to a children's party. I'm not going to juggle for you. And I'm not going to, like, do the whole mincy, ooh, missus thing that some comics here made a very good living doing. And it's boring and tedious and so from long ago. Although, I think some of them are very good at it and they're very funny and they're very good friends of mine. But that, again, is not what I do. And if you want to see that, then watch Channel 4 late at night. But don't come to my set. Is there anything that you won't touch? Is there anything that you... Um, do you know what made me think of this, actually, was when I was looking into the TV stuff that you did, and you did this show called That Gay Show yeah. on BBC Choice. And Christian it was, Digby was my director for it. Christian Digby, yeah, yeah. who died recently. Ironically, in, with, a net, with a belt around his neck. I mean, he was so private about his sex life and his personal intimate life. And when I met him, he was still professionally kind of a little bit closeted in a weird way. He's so talented and so attractive and like... Christian, you have everything. What do you have to apologize for? We went through years with this. We did another TV show called The Only Gays in the Village where we had a fist fight on camera because I pushed him. He used to have sex with all of my friends. He was notorious for that. I loved him. I've, I've really been broken up about that. It's been awful, you know. It's just terrible that that's the last image people have of him. It's so ironic because he was so private about everything. With something like that, and I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, um, but with something like that, is there, like the Madeleine McCann thing, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, I, and I heard the joke, you made and I, you know, it, it made me laugh and I didn't think, I didn't think it was bad or too soon. But um, when it's suddenly something very personal to you, when it's suddenly something that you can connect uh-huh. with, you know, if someone were to make a gag about him, would you think mm, too soon? Or I'd make gags about him the night it hit the press. Did you? Yeah, on stage. Because okay. I had a bunch of gay men in the room, I turned out. I was doing a club in Farringdon and there's a table full of queens and uh, I knew they'd get it. It was like a few days. It was definitely during the week of when it happened. Yeah, I was doing a TV show up in Norwich when Diana died, uh, like September 1st, wasn't it, 1997? And that month I was doing a weekly show up in Norwich for uh, Anglia TV. And I would have to open with set, and the first one we did, I did Diana jokes. And how it's did only, they go down? Well, some people thought it was too much. Look, I was just in Dubai talking about the Quran. It's ground zero. You're a coward otherwise. I don't think that I'm like 
this great brave person or or a muscle man or I'm going to fix people's problems. But the one thing I can do is do that, is hit them where it hurts. That's what comedy does. The, the one thing I'm capable of is not having a problem with that. So that's what I do. Again, I want them to feel like, oh, I shouldn't be laughing about this. I've had friends in the lobby after shows at the Soho Theater listening to audience members saying things like, well, I mean, yeah, I laughed, but that doesn't mean that it was right to laugh about it. I'm like, oh, oh music to my ears, that they're questioning their own choice to laugh. At it. I mean, so British anyway, but also, you know, so convoluted and so far distant from what they're actually feeling, but also just so good because they feel bad. I don't want to, I don't care about people's feelings. That's one boundary. I won't go after people's feelings, but their thoughts, that's what I'll go after. I don't care what they feel. I don't want to talk about that. They feel hurt. They feel like, oh, you talked about Anne Frank on stage. Someone, you, you've, <laughs> you've denigrated the integrity of an entire community. Do people really? Oh my God! And my yes, in the front row. Doesn't that sound English to you? And I'm like, if I had that kind of power, I'd kick your cunt out of this club. But I don't. So lay back and take it like a marine, because Daddy's working right now. Who said you were on stage? You want your own show? Get one. But people get, you know, very grand. Not just here, everywhere. My, look, Greg Proops told me years ago when I started his comic, I, was, I used to love, I love him, and I, I really emulated him. And he said, you know, the job is to weed out the boring ones. If you talk to the audience, just weed them out. There's a lot of them out there. Just weed them out. Find the interesting people that think the way you do. Can I ask something about your stand-up? When you first started, you were closeted, weren't you? Yeah. In L.A.? Uh-huh. So it was what... Rosie O'Donnell used to host a show I did every week. At, really? Yeah. She used to attack women, too. She was rotten. She'd be like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to steal your boyfriend from you, you monster, you fat bitch. I'm going to take him from you. It was all this really was she, rough. Was she out? Then? No, God. we None of us were. Really? No, we had no role models. It was L.A. in like 1987. There were no outperformers anywhere, you know? George Michael was still closeted. I mean, everybody was. And uh, no one knew what to do. In comedy clubs... I don't know what people, you know, my boyfriend knew I was gay. He would come with my friends and watch. And I would tell these horrible girlfriend jokes. God, would you really? What kind of stuff? Oh, disgusting. Like, um, women in toilet paper. What's all that about? And stuff like that. You know, very <laughs> Seinfeld-ish. Oh, it was horrible. I'm embarrassed. Anyway, so then I moved to San Francisco and I was doing a play. And then I met a lesbian comic, which sounds like an oxymoron. But anyway, I met a lesbian comic and she took me to a comedy club. And there are all these gay performers on stage. And I'd never seen it before. Actors, yes, but not comics. And I was like, oh, I was... Uh, you know, I still remember the club and the night and everything. And uh, I thought, I want to do that, you know, and then I did it. And I was very nice for a long time. Were when you? I won the Perry in 94, my show was very nice. Was it? Yeah. Was it? Bob Mills was one of the first comics I met when I was over, and he was, you know, doing really well. And uh, he has since told the guys that run this club around the corner recently, because he's back on the circuit, told them that when he first saw me that I was really nice and gentle. I was. I'd forgotten that, too. So what I'm was like, your material? What kind of stuff would Watford you do? being nice. Um... You know, uh, the difference between gay people and straight people, and my mother finding I was gay, my mother out of me to myself, and all this stuff, you know, and just polite, a little dirty, naughty, sexed, oh, sexed, ooh, like so that, then when very did the, diplomatic. When did this switch happen? When I realized I didn't have to apologize for anything. When I realized that that wasn't my voice. When I thought a club owner in San what happened, was I got hepatitis in 97, and I stopped, I was doing a TV show here, which I lost. I lost everything for a very... Long period of time here. I lost my momentum. It was really difficult. And I went back to America. I, you know, hepatitis is scary. And I didn't want to go in the hospital here. And um, I think we all know why. Anyway, so I went back to America. And I, it was bad for about six months. I was really ill. And I went back in, into the circuit there to kind of get back into it. It was hard. It was like starting over again. Like, you know, coffee shops 
with like milk machines making noise in the background and stuff like And I finally got a circuit gig back in the States again. And um, the club owner saw my set and said, you know, I have to tell you, I haven't seen you in a while. And I realized watching you that um, you might think about talking about other things other than being gay. He said, you've become a bit of an industry joke. Believe me, it was really hard to hear. I realized that a lot of comics are smarter off stage than they are on. And I realized, too, that I wanted my act to be as smart as the level of the audience's intelligence. And that assumed that they knew less than they knew. So I started doing material without buffering it. And seeing if they got it. Do you remember the first time? Like I did. Oh, yeah. Well, I wrote a play, I wrote a book and then a play about a guy who uh, falls in love with someone and then goes on a, a date with him and kills him by mistake and makes it look like uh, suicide. So it's a comedy novel about date rape and murder. And I start, and I wrote that show and did it in Edinburgh in 1998. The book's called Foul Play. Foul Play. And that was the first thing. And Stuart Lee saw it and said, "It's wow, that was." And that was really great for me because it didn't do well in Edinburgh. It did not. It did not do well. But no, it was not stand up. People didn't get it. It was, but a few of my friends liked it, and so that was really helpful. And then I thought, well, I can. And then I came back in 2000, and that's when I did the Holocaust, Schmolocaust stuff, and that's when I did all this so stuff. This, you that, said Holocaust, Schmolocaust. Well, yeah, and that. Uh, well, it's luck, luck though, because the Guardian and the Scotsman were there that night. I made people cry, and I handled it well, and they, they both gave me five star reviews. And then all the hype that that creates, and everyone comes, and then they want to be offended. And then there's nothing I can say that offends them enough. And then the smart press says, "Oh, we see it in his eyes that he's trying to generate shock. That he's trying to generate something that pisses people off because they already know." You know, and of course, all that feeds into more hype about what I'm, what's going on in my head, which they've never met me while I'm on stage. When all I'm thinking is what amuses people, and I wrote the Holocaust stuff, thinking, well, it happened so long ago. Of course, we can make jokes. I mean, if anything, that's tired. It's 50 years ago. And Frank Hanschmeck, it did piss him off in Holland, but I, but they're Dutch. They have no sense of humor whatsoever. I'm like, in Britain, they'll get they'll get the gag. But these Cambridge Footlights girls lost it in the front, of course. And they're, oh, how could you? We came. We thought you were nice. But see, they thought I was sweet because they'd see me on TV being gay and sweet. And then I'm saying, you know, Anne Frank, what a one-trick pony. And so they get up and walk out. And then I turn to this guy and say, you're hot. I'm a girl. <laughs> and it was a little lesbian in waiting. She runs out. Her mother chases her. And um, Kate Kopsick from The Scotsman is like, you know, having multiple orgasms in the eighth row because she's loving watching me sweat blood. And then uh, some guy, you're not funny, an English guy, and some gay kid next to him, I'll never forget him, said, you're lying, you've been laughing the whole time. He got up and walked out. His girlfriend wouldn't leave. They were fighting across the aisles. And um, I guess, you know, Lynn Gardner from The Guardian thought it was like the best thing she'd ever, in stand-up-wise. She doesn't usually review stand-up, but she did. And then that kicked off this whole The Jewish Chronicle followed me. The show sold out. It was great, you know. I made no money at Edinburgh. But it was good, and it, it and that was, to me, Seeing the way people reacted when I talked about having sex with Prince Harry, the way people reacted when I talked about the Queen Mum being a bag of sand, it's like I couldn't believe that they took these things so personally, calling the Queen German. If you do that in a club in Edinburgh, people lose their shit. Really? She's German. Her last name is in Windsor. They make it up. Why am I telling you this? And it's not, it's not the middle classes. It's the working class. Take that very personally because they take the royals. It's like this upstairs, downstairs bullshit. And um, I'm like, you guys, you don't have to play that game with me. You know, my mom lived on food stamps, too. But I'm not sucking that queen's cock. Not for you, not for her either. So people get really, they take it very personally, you know. It's weird. It's good because it gives us a chance. I mean, I saw that and I thought, oh, my God, there's a gold mine of comedy material I've been ignoring, which is what pisses people off. And then it all made sense to me what comedy was for me. 
And up till then, I, I fear that I was kind of, through osmosis, kind of copying other people's styles. Not meaning to, not stealing material ever, but just their patter. There's comics I, you know, friends noticed my timing and other comics in the States were much more famous. Uh, Wendy Liebman, who's not known very well over here, and others, and mostly women that I emulated. And so I wanted to get rid of all that. And I think I have. And uh, that's been, for me, the, the only really good thing I've done is gotten rid of those voices and found my own. You know, I think a lot of people find my voice as a comic disparaging, disgusting, horrifying, you know. They work in TV. They're cunts. <laughs> you're doing, you've got stand-up shows coming up, but you're doing this chat show yeah. at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, which you've done, is this the third time? You've... The, third, the third series, yeah. Right, and so tell me about it. Well, we don't film it. It's not about plugging. It's just about light chat about whatever we like. And I've pitched it as TV. And, um, so it's called Scott Cabora's position. And by the reason I bring up the pitch thing is to TV is because when I pitch it to TV people, they're like, "You'll never get this on. You'll never get guests to come along unless they can plug their own work." And my feeling was, I think you're wrong. I think celebrities have a story to tell, or several. They love reinventing themselves, and here's their chance. And I think the lineup this time is, and it's been great every time. I mean, Ken Livingston, Graham Norton, um, Boy George, Katie Brand, everybody, almost everyone we contact says yes. And then this time, we just, at one point, my producer, who's also my co-host, David Mills, and I were booking it like three weeks ago, and we're like, we've got too many A-list celebrities. How are we going to research all these people before they come on? We got Vivian Westwood, and once she said yes, like a bunch of people said yes. And so then it's just, Vivian Westwood. Yeah, George Galloway, uh, Matt Lucas is on the first one, Jimmy Carr is on the last, Nina Conti, Steve Merchant, Russell Toybee. Am I pronouncing that? Toby. Toy- Toby. I always want to say Toby, Toby but it's, yeah. yeah he's gorgeous. <clears throat> Isn't he? Uh, yeah, he's hot. And more. Ivan Massow and um, Shap- Christian Digby was on last season's, actually. Oh, he was, was he? He was great to have. Uh, Shappi Kursani is going to come along. She's fantastic. Yeah. So well, this is going to be happening the first... It starts on the 1st of April, and mm. then it's every Thursday for six weeks. Mm. Oh, and Jane's coming from... A lot of people know she's... If you've ever seen that, that uh, Kath and Kim TV show from Australia... Jane Turner, the mother, right. is going to be over here. So we got her. We almost got Debbie Reynolds. Wow. Which I could have quit. If we got Debbie Reynolds, I would have quit. That would have been it. Career's over. We, we almost got her, but she can't. Her hours of performance are at the same time. We can't get her in. Well, maybe next time. I know. Okay, so that's... Um, every, every Thursday in April every and Thursday, first Thursday in May. We start yeah. April 1st. And then also, you're going to be doing a show, your stand-up show. Leicester Square Theatre on the corner, yeah. Uh, Leicester Square Theatre, April the 14th. Yeah. Uh, and then you're in Brighton, doing the 11th, I think. Yeah, and uh, you're also going to be at the Manchester Frog and Bucket. Yeah, you've written Eek <laughs> on your website. Why? I love that place. What's the What's the It's eek? gangsters really? on a Thursday. Yeah, the first night is usually gangsters. Then the next night is big women with their big boyfriends, and then uh, it's dangerous. When I first walked in there, I thought it's thugs. It's guys in black suits at the front. When I first walked in there, I thought if if I brought my gay friends from San Francisco here, they would be horrified at the rooms I play. It's rough. How does your set go I, down? Lo- I love it. I love those rooms. For me, it's like a wild dog on fresh meat. I can't get enough. I'm all over it. People are like resistant a bit or something. And some in Manchester, if they don't like you, they turn their back to the stage. Love it. So what do you do when they do that? I throw drinks on them. I piss on them. I get my cock out. I hit on their husbands. It's a circus. The gangsters, they're the best audiences, actually. They love gay- Gangsters love gay men. I don't know what that whole thing is about. The tattooed forearms and the... Those northern guys, I, they got some weird history with their own sexuality. Not weird, maybe, just explorative. And they really responded. I, I love that club. 
So that's April the 6th, the Problem Bucket. And then um, Les Square Theatre on April the 14th. You're going to be at the Cetra Theatre in Camden, May the 7th and 8th as well. Oh, yeah, that's but, an, supposed to be a new show. Oh, Let's really? about that. Okay. But all of these are all up on your website, I which is scottcaporo.com. Yeah. One PTRs. And a whole lot of love. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.